Jesus died in your place. When he hung on the cross, he paid out a penalty that we could never pay. He took on himself a weight that you and I are not capable of bearing. And yet to today, we live really in an age of arrogance. In a time when people can't see any sin in their life, don't know of anything they need to confess or, or repent of. But as we look at Jesus on the cross, we see a perfect picture of humility and submission to the Father's will. Matthew, as he tells of the crucifixion of Jesus, he focuses on all the other people and their response to Jesus. Matthew records only one phrase that Jesus said from the cross. And today, we look at those words of Jesus as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew chapter 27, we pick up today in verse 45. I want to ask you, would you join me in standing as we read the, the Holy Scripture? Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders here, and it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among him were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray together. Father, today as we seek to understand why Jesus took this weight upon himself, 
God, speak to us from your word. And like the centurion, may we leave here in awe of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the darkest hour of history, Christ bore the full weight of our sins. And yet, I think what we see in Matthew's account is that the deepest pain was not the nails or the whip, but being forsaken by God. The Bible says here in verse 45, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. That the Jews counted the hours from, from sunrise. It wasn't precise, but it was close enough to communicate. And if sunrise is somewhere around 6 a.m., then the sixth hour would be noon. The ninth hour would be around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so the Bible tells us that at noon, the time when typically the sun is directly overhead, there was darkness over the whole land. Darkness. And in this moment, Jesus cries out. And Matthew, who wrote his gospel in Greek, he records this saying in Hebrew. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. And then he translates it for us. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all have uh, shared experiences and shared knowledge. That enables us to simply reference things without going into great detail. Because of our shared experience, I can simply say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we all know that's a hymn, don't we? Because of our shared experience, I can simply say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we know that that's the 23rd Psalm. And on this occasion, as Jesus cried out, he quoted the first verse of Psalm 22. The first verse of Psalm 22 reads, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? What's so significant about Psalm 22 is it's one of what we would call the Messianic Psalms, meaning it's prophecy about the future Messiah. And Jesus, as he cries out, quoting this Psalm, this Psalm, which by the way, the Father, he, and the Spirit had written through the inspiration of the Spirit. He calls to remind this messianic psalm, the psalm which would in many places read like a gospel account. In verses 6 through 8 of that same psalm, listen to what it says. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all the people. Listen to this. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. 
If you don't remember from the last couple of weeks, it's exactly how Matthew describes the people's response to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Verse 8 is a, is a quote of the sarcasm. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You have to wonder as the chief priests and the religious leaders on that day said these exact words to Jesus mocking him. Did they not remember Psalm 22, this great messianic psalm? Listen to what the psalm would go on to say in verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. If you read Psalm 22, it just perfectly mirrors the account in Matthew of what happened that day. As the soldiers divided up his garments, they cast lots to see who would get which piece. Those that went by, it says that they wagged their heads. And the chief priests would mock him. On this day, Jesus fulfilled all that the psalmist said would happen. But listen to the end of Psalm 22. In verse 27, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. In verse 30, he says, posterity, that's those generations that would come after her. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. None of us were alive during King David's time when most of the Psalms were written. None of us were alive in the first century to see Jesus on the cross. But we are this people who at that time were yet unborn, but yet now today proclaim his righteousness of what he has done. Jesus cried out from the cross and he he quoted this psalm. And today we live to see his complete fulfillment. On that day, bystanders did not understand what was happening. Uh, perhaps this is the reason that instead of translating Jesus' words, uh, they're left in, in Hebrew and Mark writes them in Aramaic because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense to us why they thought that he was calling for Elijah. But remember what he said, Eli, which in Hebrew is my God. 
Eli. And those that were there that day, they heard it. Not all of them spoke Hebrew. They weren't all Jews. And as they heard it, they heard him say, Eli. Some didn't recognize what he was saying. They thought that he was crying out for Elijah. And so some of the, verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them uh, at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. And he put on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Well, Elijah had already come. Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah, not that meaning that Elijah had been reincarnated, but the Elijah to come did not mean literally the prophet, but another one like him who would take on the same role. And had they listened to the second Elijah, John the Baptist, they would have been prepared to receive Jesus instead of rejecting him. But in this moment, they simply do not, they do not understand. I'm reminded of the Ethiopian eunuch who teaches us a powerful lesson. One can hear and see without understanding. In Acts chapter 8, the Bible tells us about this eunuch and Philip, the preacher that God sent to the Ethiopian eunuch to explain to him what was happening. It says that he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Notice that he didn't come to Jerusalem on official business. He came to Jerusalem to worship, and yet he still doesn't understand. The Bible will go on to tell us. And was returning, seating in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Well, this is, this is absolutely extraordinary that in the first century, at a time when there was no printing press or means of mass production, and people didn't have copies of Scripture, you had to go to the synagogue where they were, they were shared. This man, because of his wealth probably, has a copy of God's word. What a great privilege we often take for granted that we can all have our own copy of God's word to read any time that we want to. This man is sitting in the chariot. He's reading. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading from Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And listen to what the eunuch says. How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? 
And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. One can, one can read and not understand. One can see and hear and not know what things mean. And on this day, the bystanders, they heard Jesus quote scripture, but they didn't even recognize the words. They said he's calling for Elijah. And yet Jesus was not looking for someone to come and to rescue him. For he was not a victim of the Romans or the Jews. Even in the last moments of his death, Jesus was in absolute, complete control. And so verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out again, and with a loud spirit, listen to this, he yielded up his spirit. No one could take Jesus' life from him. But on this day, he gladly laid it down so that you and I could be forgiven from sin. On this day, all creation would declare Jesus the Son of God. You see, the death of Jesus began a completely new era. That's why in the Bible we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Jesus died on the cross, everything changed. Not that God came up with a new plan, but that God, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve had sinned, had foretold that he was going to provide on this day. Everything that the Old Testament had looked forward to was fulfilled in Christ as he died on the cross. And so the Bible says in verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The, the temple that was a constant reminder of man's separation from God. The temple that had courts where only certain people could go, leading up to the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go, and only once a year, to offer atonement for sin. The temple was a constant reminder of the cost of sin. It meant separation from a holy and righteous God. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. Not from bottom to top, for we didn't tear it. It was torn from top to bottom. For Jesus removed all need for separation, making a way for sinful people like me to come before a holy God, and have fellowship. So Hebrews chapter 10 would speak about this. In chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What Hebrews is saying that Jesus, Jesus who embodies every function that the temple ever had, the place of communion with God, access to God, 
that now through what he accomplished through his flesh on the cross he has torn open the curtain and there's no more separation that even though we are guilty of sin we can come before god because we can be forgiven and cleansed of sin and we can draw before god with full assurance we may stand in awe of who he is but we don't have to stand in terror of what he's going to do to sin because when jesus died on the cross he paid for our sin jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection easter sunday morning we'll be talking in detail about the resurrection of jesus but already here, the Bible mentions it. It says in verse 52, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. But now listen to this. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, after his resurrection. They, they don't come out of the tombs until Jesus is resurrected. Because you see, when Jesus came back from the dead, not being resuscitated to die again, but be resurrected to a new and glorious body, the same body, by the way, that the Bible says that you and I will have. It doesn't answer all of our curiosities about this new resurrected body, but it says that we will be like him. And the greatest thing about this, the, the new resurrected body that we can look forward to is that we'll finally be free from the sinful nature. And on this day, as Jesus was buried, three days later, he would walk out of the grave and give us a reason to believe in the resurrection. Seeing the evidence, even the centurion realized that Jesus was who he said he was. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. As people look today and try to find God, if they will look with honesty and integrity at the evidence of Jesus, they will find it is absolutely overwhelming. The Lord calls us to follow him by faith, but it's not a blind faith. We have every reason to believe. And on this day, even the centurion who oversaw the crucifixion, when he saw everything that took place, knew that Jesus was who he said he was. And then the Bible will tell us about some of those that were present. In verse 55, it describes these women who were there. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were, and notice some are named, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And Matthew describes almost universal rejection of Jesus, but yet still, even in this moment, there's, there's still a small group of people that are still with Jesus and are still following him. 
we would call this a remnant. Do you know throughout the Bible, no matter how bad things got, there was always a remnant. The Bible tells us about early on when all the earth had become evil and corrupt. And yet there was Noah, a man who loved God with all his heart. The Bible will tell us later in the history of Israel about this prophet Elijah. And Elijah was hiding in a cave in fear of Queen Jezebel. And God says, Elijah, what, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, Lord, I'm the only one left. And here's what the Lord would go on to tell Elijah. He said, I have seven thousand who have never bowed the knee to Baal. Even in the rapid idolatry and corruption under Ahab and Jezebel, God still had a remnant of 7,000. Micah would describe the remnant when he says, Micah 5, 7, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. Micah says there's coming a day when the remnant is going to be scattered everywhere. Uh, last week, I, I walked into the sanctuary, and I was up here on the stage, and I just looked back, and I saw one of my dear friends uh, sitting here. He came up to see me. Uh, Mark Olson, he preached for me recently. Uh, Mark's been serving in the military for a long time now as a chaplain all over the world. We went out to lunch, and afterwards, we were just hanging out drinking coffee. And his wife said something to me. She said, as we have lived all over the world, we've discovered that the Lord has people everywhere. She said, everywhere we go, if we look, we can find people who are faithfully serving the Lord. This is what Micah is talking about when he says, the remnant shall be in the midst of many peoples. Matthew may focus on the rejection of Jesus, but even in the midst of the Jews rejecting him, the Romans rejecting him, the disciples, most of them running and hiding in fear, there's still a remnant of people that are there. As we think about the cross today, we're living in a time in American history when fewer people believe than perhaps ever before in our nation. If you're a student of world history, this is no shock. The things ebb and flow. There have been times of great revival and awakening and times of spiritual drought. But at every moment, there has always been a remnant of people who believe and who serve. And there's no reason why today, regardless of what...